found on the inside of the bulletin. This is actually going to be a two-part uh, here. I'm actually only going to be preaching on the first part, which is um, uh, Luke 18:31 through 34. And then I'm going to be preaching on the second part uh, the next time. So I'm only going to read Luke 18:31 through 34 this time. Hear the word of the Lord. Then Jesus talked to the twelve apostles alone. He said to them, listen, we are going to Jerusalem. Everything that God told the prophets to write about the Son of Man will happen. He will be handed over to the foreigners who will laugh at him, insult him, and spit on him. They will beat him with whips and they will kill him. But on the third day after his death, he will rise to life again. The apostles tried to understand this, but they could not. The meaning was hidden from them. The word of the Lord. Well, I want to talk a little bit about some conundrums uh, in our brief time together. Some of you may wonder what the word conundrum means. Conundrum is a confusing or difficult problem. For some of us, this political election cycle is a bit of a conundrum, isn't it? We're not satisfied with either of the candidates. It's sort of choosing between the lesser uh, of two evils to some people. Uh, God is surely in the center of it, but it seems a conundrum because we can't understand how is it in our nation that this is the two candidates that we have brought forth. Uh, that's all I will say. It's a conundrum. In Christianity, particularly in this passage, there are some conundrums as well. Confusing and difficult problems. Here's one conundrum. Why is it that Jesus is so universally disliked? Don't quite understand this. You know, this is the Jesus who said to love your enemies and to pray for those who persecute you. I don't know any other um, uh, uh, prophet or messiah uh, whose name is also used as a curse word. And yet Jesus is. And it seems that the followers of Jesus and Jesus are hated all over the globe. Indeed also love. But this is a conundrum. Was it not Jesus that said to love God and to love your neighbor as yourself? In fact, it was Jesus who revolutionized the value that was placed on women and on children. Any legal scholar would tell you that the foundation of our justice system all the way back is because of the justness of Christ. It was Jesus even who on the cross cried out to God to forgive these people for they know not what they do. Why is he so universally hated? It's a conundrum. The second conundrum, more that I want to speak about today, is why are the disciples so confused about Jesus' actions? seems that they're not able to grasp why and what Jesus is doing. Here we see in this particular passage, he communicates exactly what is going to happen. And the apostles tried to understand this, but they could not. The meaning was hidden from them. It's like they're always a step behind. They're becoming, they're confused about his actions. I can connect with the disciples because sometimes I'm very confused about Jesus' actions. It's like I'm seeing him, but I'm not quite seeing what he's about. I get stuck on the periphery. I miss the core point, if you will. And what is the core point that Jesus is communicating? He's communicating that he has come, 
that he might die. And additionally, he's communicating that he's going to die and furthermore, he's going to live. Indeed, there is a necessity to these things. There's even a centrality to it. If we look at the scriptures and as Paul and the other apostles interpret through the Holy Spirit all of the life of Jesus, Paul even says, for I delivered to you of first importance what I received, that Jesus Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, that this, the death and life of Jesus Christ is actually of first importance, not of peripheral importance. So the message I want to communicate here is that it's only when we embrace these things, the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus, it's only when we make them central to our lives that we can actually see Jesus for who he is and why he's come. And so, in the brief time that we have together, I want to try to unravel the conundrum of the disciples' confusion. The first thing we need to take a look at is the necessity of his death. Jesus in verse 31, and taking the twelve, says to them, See, we are going to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. It's going to happen. If you remember from Luke 12 on, they've been progressing toward Jerusalem on this long journey. As they get closer and closer, Jesus continues to reiterate his message. Indeed, even in Luke 9, as far back, Jesus communicated to the apostles, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. After he performs a miracle in 944, let these words sink into your ears, he says to the apostles. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. There's a definitiveness of what is going to occur. Jesus says it very clearly. Listen to the words he uses. We, the Son of Man will be delivered. He will be shamefully treated. He will be spit upon. He will be killed. This is no accident. Rather, this has been planned from the beginning. Jesus says that everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. I just read, we, uh, whoever, uh, Vicky just read Isaiah 53 a little while ago, right? 700 years before Jesus was crucified by the prophet speaking very clearly about what is to happen. Indeed, we see after the crucifixion and resurrection. Remember the road to Emmaus? Jesus is walking with the disciples who are confused. They're in the conundrum. They can't understand what has just happened. They're downtrodden. And Jesus speaks to them and says, How foolish and slow of heart you are to believe what was spoken through Moses and the prophets. And beginning with Moses and the prophets, he explained to them all that was said in the Scriptures concerning himself. See, Jesus is actually saying that everything in the Bible has been leading up to this. How is it that we can read the entire Bible and miss the point that everything spoken, this death, and resurrection will be fulfilled. Indeed, it even speaks about how he will be killed, right? He will be delivered over to the Gentiles. Of course, we know the story how Jesus uses the politics of the day. 
The Jews are not allowed to kill anyone, the Sanhedrin. And so what do they do? They go to Pilate and they lobby Pilate. And in the end, it's Pilate with the Roman uh, uh, government that goes ahead and crucifies Jesus. I remember watching an interview with uh, Diane Sawyer and Mel Gibson. Remember when the Passion of the Christ came out? And there was this accusation that it was bringing out all of this anti-Semitism. And so Diane, whether to try to trap uh, Mel Gibson or not, I don't know, asked the question, well, who killed Jesus? Was it the Jews? Was it the Romans? I don't remember Mel's answer, but I do remember God's. As we see in Acts 2.23, Peter speaking to the crowd says, this man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. Who killed Jesus? Nobody. He laid down his own life. He submitted to the will of the Father and it was the actions of God. So it was God who killed God, if you will. We know how he did it. Now we need to ask the question, why? There's one thing the cross teaches us. It's this, that we are accountable to someone else. See, there is a giant cosmic balance sheet in the world. I didn't know there was a balance sheet to my life, but there most certainly is one. For every single one of my actions are being measured. Indeed, Jesus said, every careless word spoken, you will have to give an account for. I'm thankful that God is a just God. Because that means that every injustice of the world will ultimately be paid for. There's nothing so small that escapes the gaze of God. And while I'm thankful for God's justice, it also brings up sobriety and fear. For if God is just for the actions of others, what will He do when He sees mine? You see, sin, my friends, has a price. And the Bible says the one who sins is the one who dies. And just as every man is appointed to die once and to face judgment, so are we. And so if there is a balance sheet to our life, if it does have to be paid, the truth is that we belong to another. In this world, we want to take ownership for our life. But the truth is that we need to take ownership for our lives. But the ownership of our life is not ours. There's another who owns our life. We are the ones that own how we live it. Paul in Romans 14, speaking, God says, as surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me. Every tongue will confess. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. And so as we understand that the wages of sin is death, and we see Christ marching toward death, the painful truth becomes evidently clear. And the story comes into focus. That Jesus has come to rescue us by dying in our place. Look, the Lamb of God, says John, 
who takes away the sins of the world. Somebody has to pay. Someone has to go to the cross to embrace Jesus' message is to embrace His death. And to embrace His death is to embrace the reality that I am a sinner that stands under the judgment of God. See, the world, when they look at the life and death of Jesus, they say this is utter nonsense. Let us give Him no more credence than that as a great teacher, a great philosopher, even a great role model. But the fact that He had to die which would mean the fact that sin needs pain for is nonsense. Rather, we'll accept salvation through following His teachings. But the reality, my friends, is this. That we can't have one without the other. We can't have salvation without substitution. And so to embrace His death is to ultimately embrace our need. That somebody has to pay for our sins. And that someone is either myself or the Lord. I saw just actually a couple of days ago there was either a law or something passed in North Carolina, a particular area of North Carolina, where paramedics now have the authority to give blood transfusions on site. Only a couple places in the nation where you can do that. Otherwise, it's physicians and nurses who are, uh, uh, need to do that. But the, or medevacs, you know, when they fly. But the problem is this, that those first 60 minutes of whatever's happened to a person are critical. They don't receive the new life, if you will, the transfusion. No amount of triage and care is going to save them. And so what they really need is not a bandage. What they really need is blood. New blood. Fresh blood. Because they are running out. They are emptying. And so in North Carolina, they've made this rule with extra training or whatever where they can call for blood to try to get blood on the scene as quick as possible to save the person. I read that story and I thought, what a spiritual connection and analogy. I don't need a bandage when I'm bleeding out. I need new life within me. I need a substitution. Because what is in me, this sepsis, whatever it is, is causing death and not life. Jesus has come to bring the transfusion uncomfortably near and incredibly close. And so, if we want to embrace what Jesus is truly doing, we must embrace His death. How do you see Jesus? I need His advice. I need Him to tell me how to live. Certainly true. I need His power, strength to resist temptation, to be the man I'm supposed to be. I agree. I need His approval. I need Him to say, well done, good and faithful servant. I validate your existence. That's true as well. But before I can have all of that, I need His death. And so we must kneel before the cross 
and acknowledge our sin. Acknowledge that I belong up there. That someone must go and face the judgment seat of God. The cross is central to my life. His blood and His body is my substitute. Without it, I'm doomed for sure. Death and perdition is my future. Christ has come to die that I might have life. We need to have no confusion as He marches to the cross. It must be central or we've missed the message of Christianity. Let's move to the second point. If we must embrace His death, then we also must embrace his life. If the disciples were clueless about his death, one thing is also clear. They were equally clueless about his resurrection. Right? Jesus dies. They totally fall apart. They scatter everywhere. They go back to what they were doing. They don't understand. Like these people on the road to Emmaus, we don't get it. And so Jesus not only says that he's going to die, but he also says in this passage that he's going to rise. They understood neither of those things. How is it that Jesus knew that he would rise? He knew that he would be killed in this unbelievable manner. How did he know that he would rise? Because he understood the law of God. Because Christ, though he paid for our sins, had no sin of his own. Death could not keep his hold on God because Jesus the God man had lived a perfect life love that beautiful scene if you remember in the lion the witch in the wardrobe where Aslan goes to his death and the children watch and they're utterly crushed and they fall asleep in sorrow and then they awaken the next day and they see the table uh, being broken and there is Aslan who comes out and they're dumbstruck how is it that you could come back to life you, you were killed, we saw. And he said that the witch knew magic, but she did not know the deeper magic. A magic further down than the magic. Which is that an undeserved curse, as Proverbs 22.6.2 says, does not come to rest. And so Christ must die for us. But he also must rise for us. Romans 4.25 puts it this way. He was delivered over to death for our sins, but was raised to life for our justification. See, there's a deeper problem than simply the sins I commit, right? The problem with my life is not my actions. The problem with my life is me. Jesus will pay the penalty for my sins. But what about the problem of the corruption of my heart? See, the centrality of the law is ultimately not wrapped up in my hands. It's ultimately wrapped up in my heart. To love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And to love your neighbor as yourself. All that I do is an extension of how I feel and who I am. The problem is not my actions. The problem is I need a new me. See, this is why the disciples didn't get it. And this is why we don't get it. Jesus did not come to help us with our life. Jesus came to be our life. I'll say it again. Jesus did not help come to help us with our life. He came to be our life. 
See, the disciples are thinking, okay, here's the way the plan is going to work. We're going to go to Jerusalem. Jesus is going to overturn the Romans. We are going to be placed on the thrones of authority and we will all live happily ever after. It's our story, isn't it, too, right? Anybody seen a Disney movie recently? All the problems are solved. The couple falls in love. They get in the carriage. They drive away. And there is them. They lived happily ever after. Well, it ain't true, is it, right? They wake up the next day. I don't remember her looking like this. Why is he pulling up the seat and not putting the seat back down? Happily ever after is a crock. Because the reality is after the day after happily ever after, I'm still left with me. See, we want Jesus to fix our external problems. We're the same way. I think of our political situation, right? For some of us, it's life or death. We get the right person in that everything is going to be fixed. All our problems are going to be solved. But we've had the right person in office before, haven't we? And what are we still left with? We're still left with us. Our problem is not out there. Our problem is in here. That I don't love God. And I don't love others. We don't need Jesus to improve our life. We need Jesus to become our life. And Jesus is the one who truly loves God and truly loves man. And so this is what he came to do. Not only to free us from the penalty of sin, but to free us from the power of sin. Romans 6.3 Don't you know that all of us who are baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. If we have been united with him like this in his death, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. See, we were united with him in his death so that we could be reborn. Therefore, behold, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. Jesus did not come to simply renovate our lives. He came to resurrect them by taking away our hard heart and putting in a new one. Giving us a new heart, new desires, new passion, new entrance. Because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we also will live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. The death he died, he died to sin once for all, and the life he lives, he lives to God. So in the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. If you took a look at a caterpillar and a butterfly, you would say that those two looked absolutely nothing alike. But if you put them under the microscope and did a DNA analysis, you would discover they look exactly the same. The, the chrysalis and the cocoon is simply the butterfly gestating, being reborn, if you will. Christ came that we might have a new life and be reborn. And though sometimes I look like a cocoon, 
I'm most certainly a butterfly. As I float like a butterfly, yet sting like a bee. And so Christ has given me a new heart. There's a new love for God and His ways. The fact that you grieve when you sin is a very good sign. If you do not, you have to examine the question, have I embraced His death and His life? I have a new desire, a new identity, a new power. If you're a builder, I know there's one or two among us, and you look at a particular project, you always have to go through a couple of go, no go decisions. Do I go ahead and renovate this or do I tear it to the ground and have to recreate it? Some of us are familiar with the statement putting lipstick on a pig, right? You can try to make that pig beautiful, but it's still a pig. The analysis is ultimately done when you look at the inside of the structure. What's on the inside that you can't see? And if it's no good, no amount of cosmetic improvements on the outside are going to do anything. See, Jesus came more than to simply renovate our lives. He came to resurrect them and to recreate them. And He does it by giving us a new life, His life inside of us. And so if I need His death, I most certainly also need His life. And so if you are a Christian, embrace His life. It's Christ in me. Christ is not simply the power of positive thinking. Christ is the actual living Christ, His Spirit that inhabits my heart, making a new habitation, a new structure that upholds me. He's given me a new identity. And so embrace it. When the world says that you're nothing, you're rotten to the core, you're able to say, Christ in me. Christ is my life. When you sin and act contrary to God, you can say, this is not who I am. You know what Satan's definition of hypocrisy is? Acting different than how you feel. But God's definition of hypocrisy is acting different than who you are. You're a new creation in Christ, intended to live a new life of holiness, independence on Christ. Jesus said that I am the vine and you are the branches. If any man remains in me, walking in faithfulness, living out my commands in dependence, I will give him life. For apart from me, you can do nothing. We must embrace his death. And we must embrace his life. If you've come here for renovation, I got nothing for you. It's Christ who renovates you from the inside out. The disciples couldn't understand this. But when they finally had the Holy Spirit, when He came upon their hearts, and Christ and His Father indwelt them, then they saw. Christian, you are the home of the Holy Spirit. So don't be confused about what Jesus came to do and what Jesus is doing. 
For Jesus did not come to help you with your life. He came to be your life. Embrace his death. Embrace his life. And embrace his lordship. He is responsible for our life. Let us be responsible for our lives as we live out his life here in Hampton Roads day by day until his coming when the resurrection will be complete and you will see me and I will see you completely renovated beautifully resurrected the sovereign work of his hands he is faithful and he will do it let's pray Oh Lord, you call us to walk on that Via Dolorosa every day. To walk with you. To see your sovereign gift. No accident, but a gift of love. For it was your life to give and you gave it. But you are the king and an undeserved curse does not come to rest. And so we acknowledge your resurrection. God, your Father, who found no fault in you. We see you for who you are, the perfect one. You inhabit our lives. You've given us life. Let us live our lives in response. And I pray for whoever here has not yet embraced your death, that they might embrace your resurrection, your death and life and experience what it truly means to be reborn, to live a resurrected life in this broken world. We pray all of these things in Christ's name. Amen.